Welcome to Embargo, a podcast featuring intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade for trade nerds and normal human beings alike. I am one of your hosts, Brian Fleming, and I am here, as always, with my trusted partner, friend, colleague, and co-host, Mr. Timothy O'Toole. What is up, Tim? What is up, Brian? Happy Fall Friday. Happy Fall Friday, this late October Friday. It's a beautiful day here in the D.C. area. Uh, We're grateful for that. We're also grateful to be back here with you again uh, for episode 17 of Embargoed. We're, the numbers are climbing here as we, uh, as we carry on through uh, the pandemic and beyond. Uh, so welcome back. Uh, thanks for joining us again. Thank you for everybody who uh, we heard from after uh, our last episode. Um, we are uh, going to change things up a little bit format-wise, uh, being that we are less than two weeks away from the U.S. presidential election, uh, which is uh, quite consequential for many, many reasons, not the least of which are the things we talk about on this program every couple of weeks. So that's going to be our focus today, uh, and I'll, we'll sort of take you through the agenda and the roadmap in, in a moment. Um, just to dispense with the normal uh, preliminary comments, we're not here giving legal advice. We are not disclosing confidential information. Um, and we are just giving our opinions. And this one in particular is going to be um, much more probably opinion heavy than, than most even because we are dealing in, uh, we're, we're literally looking into the crystal ball to think about what we're going to be dealing with here for the next four years and beyond uh, in, in sort of trade policy coming out of the U.S. So um, that is certainly the case here. Uh, and then, of course, if... Uh, if you like the program, uh, please subscribe. You can find us anywhere, uh, Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, YouTube, anywhere you get your content. Please give us a rating, a five-star rating, hopefully, and uh, come back and see us again on the next episode, which um, this is this is being recorded on Friday, October 23rd. This will be up the last week of October, uh, a week in advance of the U.S. election. Uh, we will not be recording again until after the election. We hope we will have results at that point. Um, and so uh, this is a, a good sort of inflection point for us to uh, take a pause and think about what's coming up. Um, and so before we do that, and before I give the roadmap for today, Tim, any any thoughts before we jump into our election palooza episode? No, I think this is all about the election and, and people ought to take what we say with a grain of salt. These are our our hot takes. We didn't do any practice beforehand to, to figure out what our takes are going to be. So, so um, we're trying to, to figure this out. We've done a lot of work in these areas. So we have an informed guess, but these are all educated guesses as to what's going to happen. That's exactly right. Uh, so uh, we are going to, the format for today is as follows. We are going to, during the bulk of the program, we're going to run through uh, a country by country breakdown of what we would expect to see, depending on whether we are in a Biden administration come 2021, or we're in a Trump 2.0 administration come 2021. And we're going to run through what we think are probably the five most important U.S. trade 
targets or uh, at the moment, um, whether from a sanctions, export controls or other basis. And these are not going to be surprising to anybody who's listened to any of our prior episodes. We're going to go probably in order of significance, China, Iran, Russia, Venezuela, Cuba. Uh, that is that is going to be the rundown, and we're going to take turns, sort of uh, expounding upon our thoughts on whether, again, whether it's Biden or it's uh, Trump 2.0 uh, in those areas, and what we would expect to see and what to be on the lookout for. Uh, and, and also, just as and and then we're going to wrap up with one quick lightning round item, which is a China-focused item, uh, talking about um, ant groups uh, impending IPO. Uh, and the rumored U.S. regulatory actions that may be uh, coming together to take a take a bite out of that, and then uh, back by popular demand, we're going to wrap up with trivia um, because the last the last trivia was. Um, it was, was a lot so of fun. Hard, Brian. It, it was well, hard. So, it was hard. So, and in fairness, I again, I had not warned him about that. I came, I came, sort of off the top rope with a really challenge. I came in with like 103 mile an hour fastball with no warning and he did the best he could and it struck out. So this time um, I can tell you, I pledge to you, I have a a three-part question. I think there's a very good chance you're going to go three for three on this one because it's, it's, wow. uh, yeah, I, I, I have faith and I think this is well within, I know you're going to get one out of three. I think you're getting at least two out of three, a good chance you're going to get three out of three. So Damn. Um, that's what we're going to wrap with. You're going to throw some batting practice fastballs for me. Yeah. And so that's what we're going to wrap with. Um, and um, yeah, so that is, uh, that is the program for today. Uh, that's, that's the plan. And, and also just as a, just as a bit of a teaser for what's coming down the road, we expect, uh, as we said, the next episode will not be recorded or released until after the election. And again, hopefully after the results are uh, certain. And uh, we expect in the coming months that we are going to be focused more on this question of what are we going to see the next four years uh, again, whether it's a change in administration or a continuation of the current administration. And to help us with that, I think we're going to bring on some guests and friends to talk about that, uh, including some uh, w- one guest. Well, we've only had one guest, one guest that people have seen before, our friend Richard Mojica, our, our friend and partner, and uh, also then some guests and colleagues from around the world who um, experience these issues uh, from that lens, whether it be in Asia or Europe or Latin America, because uh, we think it would be valuable to have those perspectives and sort of hear from folks that are living that um, a little more directly uh, in their day to day. So that is what we expect to be doing coming up in the in the, in the latter part of this year. But um, to start, we are going to, again, gaze into the crystal ball and think about what is coming, uh, depending on the outcome of um, November 3 uh, in the US and the presidential election. So um, with topic number one, no surprise to uh, our loyal listeners is China. Um, and in, in thinking this through, so I, I'm going to kick things off and I will just sort of set the stage and then I'm going to comment a bit about um, what we might see from a Biden administration with respect to China. And then we'll kick it to Tim to comment on that and then and then sort of roll over to if we have a, a second Trump administration, what that would might be. Um, you know, just in sitting down to think about and catalog all of the various um, kind of initiatives, 
and uh, policy maneuvers that are currently in play with respect to China is, is pretty dizzying at this point. Uh, and we have talked about most, if not all of these. So this will not be, again, all that unfamiliar to folks who listen to the podcast and who follow this. So just, just sort of thinking through quickly and ticking them off, you know, in the export control space, we have the military end user and end use rules, which are massively consequential. We have more reforms in terms of export control uh, coming as a result of the Export Control Reform Act. That has started, but we're going to see more of that in the coming years. We obviously have the, the uh, we have Huawei, the changes to the foreign direct product rule with respect to Huawei. We have the way that the Commerce Department is just in the end user review committee is using the entity list just full stop how aggressively and how expansively it's been used the last few years. We have on the OFAC front, we have the Hong Kong sanctions, we have uh, the Uyghur related sanctions and, and the sanctions targeting Xinjiang. Um, I also forgot the first entity listings relating to South China Sea activities, we have that. And then that's not it. And then of course we have, we have WeChat and Tencent, we have TikTok and ByteDance. We have, as we're going to talk about in a bit, uh, Ant and Alipay potentially in the crosshairs for some type of IEPA-based uh, sanctions or restrictions. Um, and that's not even getting into um, CFIUS, which is another massively um, important area with respect to China. And of course, um, the tariffs Section 301 tariffs and the other activities that are going on, um, human rights related activities, again, focused on Xinjiang and imports into the US um, and some WROs that have been issued and things along the, that those lines. We're gonna have Richard on in a future episode to talk more about where things stand there and what he expects going forward. But you know, that is just a that is just a massive amount of activity just focused on one country. And um, we are on the record on this program as saying that even if the if Biden were to win, that sort of the we think that the tough on China era is here to stay, at least for the foreseeable future, um, with respect to U.S. trade policy. Uh, and I, I certainly stand by that. Um, however, and we have touched upon a number of these issues, but I think it's worth kind of thinking them through now. We do think, importantly, that you know, the tone with respect to our relations with China may very well change. Um, it may not be quite as adversarial and strident as it has been over the past few years, although it is, it is hard to say uh, that that, it, or hard to imagine that that is going to just go away overnight. I can't imagine that there's going to be some, you know, reconciliation, symbolic or uh, real that happens, you know, in 2021, even if uh, Biden were to prevail. Um, but then there's, you know, a lot of these activities that we're talking about, which is, you know, would we see, would we see the, the TikTok, ByteDance, WeChat, Tencent executive orders uh, be reinstituted if, if the courts clear the way to do that? Um, would we see uh, the tariffs remain at the levels that they're at now? Would we see, um, you know, the, uh, some of the, um, some of the other activities that we've been seeing on the sanctions front at the pace that they're going, would we see the entity list still being deployed in the way um, that it has been, which is to say quite a, quite a departure from sort of what it has been traditionally, which is, which is a tool used to prevent U.S. technology from getting into the hands of people who have shown that they have no 
um, desire to follow the rules. And now it is being used much more as a blanket prohibition, broadly used against uh, foreign policy and national security targets, where perhaps there is no indication that there is really any export control related um, threat that is specifically posed by that entity. It is a much broader amorphous tool as it is being used right now, much more like the way that the SDN list is, is used by OFAC. So I think the short answer to that in a Biden administration is yes, we will, I believe we would see changes across kind of many of those areas. Um, you know, I don't know that we would see the entity list being used quite as expansively or aggressively. I don't know that we would see um, you know, the types of orders we've seen with respect to WeChat and TikTok. Um, I think it's also important to point out, and this is a good segue to throw it to, to Tim, is, you know, from everything that we know, whether it be through news reporting, through anecdotal um, evidence that we are hearing from people inside government or outside of government who are dealing with these issues and from our own experiences dealing with these issues directly uh, and interacting with uh, OFAC and the Commerce Department on these issues. Um, everything that is happening right now with respect to, to China is driven top down. It is all dictated kind of White House down. It, it, there is not a lot of kind of meeting in the middle where you may have the agency as sort of the subject matter experts in the and the White House or the president at the at the top and maybe some folks in Congress that are pushing a certain agenda. And there's some middle ground that gets reached in terms of policy uh, development in this area. From, from everything we know, it is all top-down driven. And so I do think that if, if Biden were to win, his approach here would probably be a bit of a departure from that. It would, it would probably be just sort of just as a mechanical measure, probably closer to the Obama era, which is much more that middle ground. Now, substantively, I don't think it's going all the way back to the Obama era, but I think just from a, you know, mechanically, I do think we would probably be more in that middle ground um, where there would be some mediation that occurs as a result of the, the career people and even the politically appointed people at the agencies kind of you know, having perhaps slightly different views about how um, it's best to conduct uh, some of these efforts, uh, as opposed to let's just be as aggressive as possible at all times on all fronts, and uh, you know, let's let's do that quickly and consistently across the board. So, so that's what I'll I'll sort of leave it there and sort of throw it to Tim for any sort of comments on that, and then to kind of transition into if if we're in a second Trump administration, what, what we might expect to see. Thanks, Brian. I, let's see if we can talk about both of them together, because I, I do think that that there is one kind of big fundamental difference in how a Trump administration would view China as opposed to how a Biden administration would view China. And I think you put your finger on it right at the end there when you talked about the the top down versus kind of organic um executive branch policy making that has been more traditional in foreign policy areas of all sorts, but is it has not been particularly common during the Trump administration, particularly with respect to high profile countries like China. So so I, I think the way that I look at this is that I think Biden will view the world the way that traditional presidents have viewed the world, which is that 
Um, we look at the United States strategic foreign policy interests and we take actions consistent with respect to those particular interests. So we're, we've got a goal with respect to China, whether it be kind of to stop what we view as, as China's um, theft of intellectual property or theft of trade secrets or uh, you know, intrusion into data privacy issues. Those are like the substantive issues that the U.S. is concerned about. And also, you know, the growth of China's military and its expansion into the South China Sea. Those are the, the, the lack of autonomy in Hong Kong, the, the treatment of the Uyghurs. Those are all strategic goals that the Trump administration has pursued in a sense, but it hasn't really pursued it directly. And so, so I, I view President Trump as looking at particularly China foreign policy, not with those particular goals in mind, although some of his, his ultimate um, tactics for achie achieving his goals have, have been aimed at those areas, but more uh, as he, I think, wants to, and he said this, um, he wants to enter into a deal with China that essentially readjusts the relationship between the two countries that really just on its own solves a lot of the issues that I was talking about. And he sees, I think, a lot of these, um, these different policies on trade issues as means to get to that end. And so, like, for example, with TikTok and WeChat, it's not really clear to me why it is that those particular policies will get us very far in terms of um, the concerns about the Chinese government data privacy intrusion. I mean, it's just not all that meaningful to get into the US database and the, the size of the market, particularly with, um, with WeChat, is just not that big here. And so that doesn't look like an action that if you, know, if you took the whole array of actions that the Trump administration could, could could use to, to deal with data privacy issues, those actions don't look like they're particularly well targeted to that. Um, in the same way, uh, I, I do think that the military end user change was a change that was targeting the, the civil military integration of the, the Chinese government and, and private business. But, but I also think that um, the timing was such that it was designed to put maximum pressure on China to try and push it towards a deal. So it was not an, it, the, the idea itself, I think it was rolled out too fast and I think they didn't think through the policy as well as they could have because I, my understanding is that there was an, a top-down directive to get China things through the door and they'd been thinking about it a while. So they, they put it out, but I, I think if they'd had more time to consider it, it would have been better. So I, I think that to me, if Trump wins, that still will be the goal. And, and the goal will, will be to get to this kind of grand bargain because if Trump wins, and I'm gonna assume that if he wins, that it will be President Trump's last term and a, and a president in the middle of their last term is usually much more interested in um, their legacy building as opposed to strategic wins. And so I think that right now, China is kind of a political issue for the president that he wants to kind of look tough on China, but he does so, I think, in the, in, in the hopes that eventually he can get to a grand strategic deal. And so I think if, if Trump wins, a lot of these trade issues will become bargaining chips to get to that, that area. And so I wouldn't be shocked at all to see WeChat and, uh, and TikTok go away um, if it were part of a if if it were part of a bigger deal with China, uh, in the same way, I could see President Trump trading off the the the, the restrictions on Huawei um, as part of a grander deal on on China. I think the tariffs will stay, but they're there to put pressure on China to get to enter into a, a deal. And so I think a lot of the policies will both 
stay the same as they were, and there'll be some more unpredictable ones. But I think you know the entity list will be continued to use as part of kind of the bargaining approach, as opposed to the traditional export control uses of the entity list. But I, but at the end, it, but but I think that in President Trump's second term, the the pressure will be even greater, or at least his desire will be even greater to get the actual deal. In the first term, I think there was a little bit of a desire for the deal, but if we couldn't get the deal, he still could score political points by looking tough on China. In the second term, presumably he won't care about that. What he'll really care about is building a legacy, and the legacy will come through a grand deal that every president has been trying to cut with China, and and no president has succeeded. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And you hit on exactly the point that I was going to follow up on, which is, uh, you know, many, I think, perceive that the actions that the president has taken with respect to China have largely been to feed and support a narrative to help him win re-election. And if he's got no elections to run for any longer after this one, presumably then uh, then I think what the constitution says yeah, let's let's put that aside for a moment that's that's a whole separate issue but um, the but presumably um, I think I agree with Tim that, that the only thing that sort of makes sense is that it's this kind of legacy building grand deal goal however the caveat there of course is with this president and this administration it is very difficult to know whether that is sort of that logical straight line is going to hold. And as a result, especially when there is essentially no political accountability to be had for anything that happens in the next administration, unless perhaps there would be another prospect of impeachment for some other type of activity um, that we don't know about yet, um, then you just don't know which way the the zigs and the zags may come and what and something completely out of left field could could be coming down the um down the road uh, in a second trump administration second trump term um that we can't possibly foresee right now so i would not discount that possibility because it is a bit of an it would be a, a bit of an all bets are off situation uh if he is uh, if he does secure a second term and i think especially with respect to china which is clearly the area where he has, as Tim said, tried to stockpile the most chips to make that kind of a big overarching deal that would just fundamentally rebalance the uh, dynamic between the US and China. Um, it is it is hard to say how how that'll play out. And I would also add, China has largely remained kind of tempered in the way that they have responded to everything that has happened by the U.S. from the U.S. And there are indications, obviously, that they are gearing up for perhaps a more aggressive combative era here. And that's there's just been announcements about new Chinese export control laws that are going into effect. We've talked about recently the unreliable entity list. There are many other they they have the fate of the uh, TikTok um, you know, bite dance deal in their hands right now. It would it would seem so. There are there are chips that they are stockpiling as well. And if if things if things go off or veer off course in a way that's maybe even not predictable um, to where things have been heading, I, I I don't know where this goes. Right. That 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 is a contingency that everybody needs to be thinking about. Is that this could really go off the rails in the next four years potentially. 
Well, I mean, the, what I what I will say as a segue is that it could turn into what Iran looks like, right? I mean, so so with China. I definitely think that President Trump has a deal in mind. And as you pointed out, Brian, China has been relatively restrained. And so a deal still remains within the realm of possibility, although some of the things that both the U.S. and China have done have started to get aggressive enough that it, it, I think, decreases the possibility of a deal rather than increase it. But it's clear with China right now, both sides still are building up chips and may decide at some point in the future to cash them in, in, in the hopes of a, a bigger deal that would make a lot of these issues go away. That's the same strategy that the Trump administration has had towards Iran. Uh, it, it clearly ha- is trying to build up chips with Iran to get a deal. Um, and you'll talk about what happens if President Trump wins, but the irony is, is, that, is that there was a deal, right? I mean, President Trump has put all his chips on the table with with Iran sanctions and not only restoring the ones that were lifted by the JCPOA, but doubling and tripling down on new Iran sanctions. And so Iran is far more heavily sanctioned than it was during the JC, pre-JCPOA period at this point. And, and um, what has happened from Iran is that I think it has steeled the resolve of the Iranian leaders and the Iranian people not to enter a deal. And in fact, you know, the, the Iran is, is, is restarting its nuclear program by all, all accounts. Um, the, heart, the, 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 the moderates in Iran had been so undermined that, that even if they wanted to, to go negotiate a deal with President Trump's administration, I, I don't think they could. I think that that would be dangerous to their, their government. And certainly it would, would um, strengthen the hardliners if there were any word that there was a negotiation of a deal. And so, so far, putting all the chips on the table with Iran has just led to um, exactly the opposite of what a deal has looked look like. And I, I think that if if President Trump is, um, you know, thinking about legacy, that will be something that he's going to want to think about hard. And you can talk more about that. But I'll talk about what happens if Biden wins. So if Biden wins, Biden has said that that we would go back into the JCPOA. Now, I don't know if that's possible at this point, because Iran is now out of compliance. They'd need to come back into compliance. Iran has, I think, very legitimate concerns about uh, the lack of enforceability of the last deal. And so its willingness to go into a deal where the U.S. can just pull out for no reason at any time with no even pretense of some sort of violation of the deal by the Iranians is something that I think is going to be a non-starter. So I don't think you could... Uh, you know, there was talk last night at the debate about, you know, entering back into the Paris Treaty. That apparently is pretty easy and nothing has really changed. So the U.S. could do that on climate. But whether the U.S. could enter back into the JCPOA under the current circumstances where Iran likely wouldn't want to do it without some changes and there are sanctions in place that have really changed the landscape at this point, um, it's going to be very tough. And so I think if President Biden wins, um, that will be the stated goal. And there will probably be some immediate rolling back of some of the more kind of aggressive recent sanctions that the U.S. has put into place. But I I, I think that if the, the goal is to get to the uh, uh, some sort of you know, re-entry into the JCPOA. It's going to be complicated. There'll need to be negotiations. It won't look exactly like the JCPOA. It'll look something close. And I think that, I think it's fairly likely that President Biden will will try to do that very early in the term as part of a um, rekindling the alliances uh, tour that he, I think, is likely to do if, if he wins very early in the term is get together with the Europeans, get together with our our, our Asian allies and start trying to um, 
lead by consensus as opposed to just kind of going off wherever the, the U.S. has been going off, which is, the, and that's not a criticism of President Trump, it's just an observation that he he takes he takes foreign policy where, wherever the U.S. wants to go and really doesn't pay much attention to the allies. And I think President Biden would be much more consensus building on, particularly on Iran. Yeah, I think that's the critical point there is that you know, the level of damage that may have been done and the lack of trust now with the just the partner countries that were part of the JCPOA, China, Russia, uh, UK, France, Germany, and even beyond that, just broader global allies and other countries um, is hard to quantify. But I think you're just putting aside sort of the, as a technical matter, whether the U.S. could kind of rejoin uh, the deal kind of, you know, or restart discussions to, you know, come up with deal 2.0 or something like that. I think there are going to be significant barriers there just from the, the trust perspective, because in terms of negotiations, and I think you hit it in terms of Iran, they've been burned once. Why are they even going to come back to the table to have this discussion? Uh, and, and I think that's a, a huge, there's going to be a huge chasm there and it's going to take a while before anybody might entertain that seriously. Um, so I, I agree with all that. Just thinking about uh, sort of where you started on this, which I think is exactly the right place to start with respect to Iran. So, you know, we things have kind of reversed course about as much as they could in four years with respect to U.S. policy toward Iran. And you noted that there are now, you know, the secondary sanctions and other sanctions imposed with respect to Iran are, are as expansive as they have ever been. We talked about this just on the last episode with the new sanctions targeting the financial sector and virtually all Iranian banks now being subject to some form of, of sanctions, whether they be, um, uh, you know, at this point and sort of closing off the Iranian economy further from the global community, even more so than it had been already. I, I think that's the, I think that is the kind of critical point in the, in the sort of thought experiment or question here is that given how much of an about face there has been for the policy, and if we would, if we would have another four years, the U.S. seems to have you know, sort of spent all of it, many, if not me, I'm not going to say all, but many of its bullets with respect to Iran, right? In terms of building up chips, trying to move toward, you know, getting rid of what was deemed to be a bad deal by, by President Trump in search of perhaps a, a new deal. Um, you know, if they're, if the idea is that they're waiting for uh, regime change uh, that is going to be beneficial somehow to U.S. interests, I, I don't know, that is, as we're going to talk about in a bit with respect to Venezuela and Cuba, that is, seems never to be sort of a great bargain or, or something to hold your breath for when it comes to the way that we're exercising our, our you know, sanctions tools and other foreign policy tools, but uh, certainly not in, in the next you know, few years, perhaps, maybe in, if we're talking decades, that could you know, sow the seeds of that. But um, it's, it's hard to know, and we've said this and others have said this, where else they can go with, re with respect to additional sanctions and additional restrictions with respect to Iran. Um, they have been isolated about as much as they can be at this point, um, you know, w with the exception of sort of that sliver of sort of humanitarian trade that remains. Um, 
the U.S. has kind of deeply isolated itself from, you know, close allies and the rest of the world with respect to the way that it's treating Iran, which is, you know, the optics of that have become even more difficult for the U.S. in the past several months with in the midst of the COVID pandemic and how hard that has hit Iran and how it, um, you know, to use a, um, a very simple metaphor, it looks like we're sort of kicking a kicking a man when he's down, right? And, and sort of just making, making matters worse, uh, piling on perhaps in terms of the grief and the pain that we're putting on Iran uh, with respect to current policies. So, um, you know, the, the rhetoric, the message, it certainly will not change. And if anything, will we'll, we'll be even more kind of, un, I don't know that it could be that much more unfiltered, but, um, you know, I would expect all of that to, to, to continue. Again, where we would, where the U.S. would go under a second Trump administration with respect to Iran, and how much harsher they could make the sanctions, because I fully believe, and I think we fully believe, that they will pursue and implement the harshest possible sanctions they could possibly, anybody could imagine. Um, you know, again, what other what other aspects there are, how, what other levers there are to pull. Um, you know, to either get a change of behavior, to, to foster regime change, to um, bring them, bring Iran back to the table to negotiate a better deal where for the, a better deal for the U.S. Uh, than the JCPOA. It's hard to know what that looks like. It's hard to even envision what that looks like. And so um, I would expect that that would be the stated purpose. That would be, that would continue to be the goal. We would continue to see a, a frantic pace of designations of entities and individuals in Iran and connected to Iran uh, to, you know, continue to buttress that, uh, the, that sanctions program and, and make it, um, you know, make all aspects of sort of the Iranian economy even more uh, kind of radioactive, no pun intended, to the global economic community. Uh, but again, beyond that, it's hard, to, it's hard to know. And it's hard to envision sort of what that what that looks like. I don't know if before we move to Russia, I don't know if you have, Tim, any sort of thoughts as to I, not that I want to not that I necessarily want to plant these seeds for anybody. Um, because, you know, I, I, I have a hard time understanding sort of what else we're gaining by these kind of continued incremental adjustments up. Again, it, it maybe it is just sort of a logical coherence and consistency in terms of we're, we're going to be harsh and aggressive maximum pressure at all costs at all times. And that's just what we're doing. And at some point the dam will break perhaps that is what they're counting on. And there will be some, you know, uh, some maybe more obvious benefit that could flow to the U S but uh, it's hard to, it's hard to know in the short term sort of what that might be. Yeah. I mean, so two quick points, I'll touch on one of them that, that you made, Brian about um, sanctions for the purpose of regime change. I, I think if, if, folks thought about the, the contrary scenario, it'd be easy to understand why sanctions are just not a good tool for regime change. I mean, if Russia or China basically said to the US, we're going to put you under sanctions until you change your government. The, and, and basically, we're going to try and cut off your economy until you change the government. I think there would be in the US a lot of um, very loud complaining about how that was illegal. 
about how it was immoral. I think people would start to figure out ways within the U.S. to evade sanctions. I think people would start to rally around whatever government was in place, even if they weren't originally supportive of it, because there was there's an outside threat that they deem as kind of the it's the White Walkers scenario. Everybody everybody unites to fight the fight the 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 bigger threat, and I think that that's what would likely happen in the U.S. if somebody tried to do that to us. So it shouldn't be surprising that that's what's happened in Cuba, and that's what's happened in Iran and other places like that. I just sanctions just historically have not been a good foreign policy tool if you want to get a new government. By contrast, sanctions are often quite a good tool, especially if they're multilateral, to get a, the current government in power to change behavior because you're not going to get a government in power to agree to essentially just turn over power to somebody else. But you could get them to agree to change the policies that you don't like, especially if the carrot is that then the sanctions will be reduced. So so those the sanctions can work for that. They, they arguably did work for that in the JCPOA era. I think that if President Trump wins, that's still his kind of secondary goal here. And maybe his primary goal is to get the Iranians back to the table in order to do a deal. Um, the problem that he has is that it's hard to get somebody back to a deal by breaking the last deal that you had with, because you, you, it just leads logically, it's hard for somebody to come back and say, well, yeah, so now I'll come back and negotiate with you about a deal that will presumably be binding, except the last time we had a deal, you broke it when you felt like it when and, and tried to get a better one. So why should I agree with you on this one? So it the dynamic would be very hard, but I, I think that um, it, the, the, the other kind of big picture point I wanted to make about what will happen in Iran if, in a second Trump administration is I do think that that is when we are likely to see um, the world start to push back against U.S. unilateral sanctions in Iran. I think the world, particularly China, but, but really other parts of the world now are largely kind of staying back, and, and I put Europe in this camp as well, they're staying back because they think that there's some chance that the Iran policy will change by, by virtue of the US election. So they don't wanna really start pushing back um, as a group on it now and getting into a big fight with, with President Trump over Iran at this point. But if there is a second term, I, I, I can't see the, the level of acquiescence and compliance with US sanctions um, in Europe, particularly in China uh, and other countries that is going on now. I, I think they'll start to push back and say, if the US wants to go it alone, that's fine, but we don't have any obligation to, to, um, to, to abide by that, that, that policy. And not only that, the U.S. financial system is still a great financial system. We'd love to be hooked up with it, but you know what? We're going to go our own way. And if you want to cut us off from the U.S. financial system, we'll start to build a network of our own. Yeah, and obviously, I think with China, that's the biggest risk because they have uh, they have the the might, the scope, the scale, and the and the sort of global connectivity to perhaps push that agenda better than anybody else. Um, obviously there's, you know, there's the blocking regulation in the EU, there's other kind of counter sanctions that are in place, but to Tim's point, I think at the end of the day for private actors here in particular, the calculus is always, well, if I'm weighing risks and I'm more afraid that the U S is going to come after me than my own government is going to come after me, guess what? I'm probably going to follow. I'm probably going to abide by the rules that the U S wants me to follow. Uh, and that is going to be something that's. A, that's a change over time, but but I think you're right that we if we see 
second Trump administration, especially with respect to Iran and, and the sanctions become, if they could become even more draconian than they already are, uh, I think we are wading into that territory where we may start to see that some more. So um, yeah, time will tell, but that, that I think is a real possibility. So, um, so why don't we put China and Iran behind us for the moment and let's flip to sort of a very different um, sort of context, which is Russia. And a situation where I think all would agree that um, given the range of possibilities and justifications for harsh treatment of Russia over the past four years, we have not seen that. And so, uh, and the tools at the disposal of the US government. Uh, and so starting with what we could see from Biden, I think there's no question that in terms of a ratcheting up of pressure and uh, aggressive treatment against a uh, perceived foreign adversary. Uh, this would be, I think, exhibit number one in terms of where we could see more under a Biden administration. There's obviously ample tools in place. Uh, if we even just looking back at at Katsa, uh, countering America's adversaries through Sanctions Act passed in mid-2017, in the early days of the Trump administration, there are so many provisions under Katsa that uh, permit the U.S. to impose secondary sanctions uh, on all kinds of foreign actors. Largely, those have been, uh, now we know for a fact, those have had deterrent effect, 100%, because we have, we advise many, many foreign companies and individuals on these issues. We know it has had a deterrent effect and, and the Congress and OFAC and other, and the State Department would say, well, that's a win, great. However, we have seen very light enforcement of those provisions in terms of being a basis for uh, designation or uh, any kind of penalties that have been actually Im imposed or any of the other sanctions that are menu-based sanctions that are also available under certain provisions of CASA. We have, we have barely seen any of that. So that is all in play and all could be possible. Um, that uh, on top of that, you know, just this week, there were more reports that, you know, Russia, it's been confirmed that Russia is once again trying to uh, meddle in the U.S. election. Uh, you know, there were authorities put in place to uh, enable the U.S. to fight back against that uh, with respect to sanctions. We talked about this a couple of episodes ago, how there has been some activity there, but I don't think anybody would say that there has been overwhelming activity in that regard, uh, focused on sort of countering that. Uh, in, under the Trump administration. So again, I think, um, I think if we see a Biden administration, this sort of election interference, cyber, militia cyber activity, uh, Nord Stream 2, uh, some of the other, act, you know, just anything obviously that sort of flows directly from the annexation of Crimea, um, any of those types of activities, uh, not, uh, the use of chemical and biological weapons outside of Russian territory, which is um, a hot button issue uh, always, it seems, with Russia. Um, all of those types of activities, I would, I think, I don't think it's a stretch uh, to say that I would certainly, and I think we would, Tim would agree with me, would um, expect more action and more aggressive action on behalf of the U.S. if we do see a Biden administration, because there are ample tools at the disposal of the U.S. They are just not currently being used all that aggressively. So, um, you know, this is obviously one area, one country that is fraught with all kinds of complications with respect to the way that the U.S. is handling foreign policy at the moment. Um, and so, 
uh, with that, I will I will turn it to Tim and and sort of what we what we might expect if we do get um, a second Trump administration with respect to Russia. Right, and I'll just quickly comment on Biden before talking about what happens if Trump if there's a Trump too with respect to Russia. I I think if if Biden wins, we will have as you said, Brian, substantially increased enforcement probably increased use of the tools under CATSA that the president is provided with to, to um, go after Russian behavior. And the one other thing that I would add is I, I think we'll see increased um, use of Russia sanctions in a multilateral way, which is what happened in the Obama administration. I mean, the, the Russian sanctions, I think, um, were probably the best example of coordinated action between the U.S. and its European allies. And when they first went into place after the actions in Crimea, um, they were very coordinated and actually very logical. You, you, we, because we knew what the U.S. sanctions against Russia were, we kind of knew what the EU sanctions against Russia were, even though you know we're not EU lawyers, because they were very similar. Um, and I think that that will that is likely to be another area where a President Biden would look for consensus in, in Russia policy, because I think a President Biden would be much more in line with the current EU consensus with respect to Russia than a President Trump is. So if President Trump wins, um, President Trump is not, uh, I think, does not share the EU consensus view uh, of Russia, which is that it is a semi or, or completely now autocratic state that uh, doesn't value uh, civil liberties and, and human rights and has taken kind of aggressive uh, action against some of its neighbors in order to gain territory or to, in order to execute its foreign policy goals. And so they, they Europe, I think, treats Russia as a threat. President Trump, treats Russia as a potential ally that hasn't been treated properly in the past. I think that's the language that he's used, that we just we should be, be better friends with Russia, but we're not because we haven't been very nice to Russia. And so I think going into a second term, um, one of the things that it was reported that President Trump wanted to do in his first term, and he may have even said this at some point, was to lift the Russian sanctions. Now, Katza made that impossible, but... Um, or at least impossible without a you know without a new law. So you know the cats have froze most of the Russian sanctions into place, and so so if President Trump were to win, I think that we'll probably see more of the same, particularly if if he wins without uh, winning the House and the Senate. Now, if he wins the House and the Senate. I certainly think, given his past statements about Russia, that he could decide that he wants to cut a deal with Russia to lift the sanctions, and he will cut such a deal and try and get it through Congress. And and if if it's an entirely Republican Congress, I I, I don't see that 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 wouldn't be impossible. It's not outside the realm. If if any House of Congress is is Democratic um, after this election, then I I don't think it's a very likely uh, scenario. But I think really, to me, the most likely scenario on on a President Trump in Russia is that it will look a lot like now where you have very light enforcement, um, very light designation power, very light use of discretionary sanctions uh, against Russia. Uh, and, and, and probably uh, at the same time that there's light sanctions enforcement, there's kind of an attempt to get a deal with Russia to lift the sanctions. Yeah, I think that's... Um... I, all good points. I, I would also add one other complicating factor here, um, which is something we we have t talked about a lot with respect to China. And Tim sort of alluded to this, which is, you know, the new 
export control restrictions uh, that BIS has imposed relating to military and users and, and uses have all also covered Russia uh, and Venezuela, although I think the volume of, of uh, dealings in Venezuela is going to be the lowest of the three. But in Russia, you know, just given the sort of uh, the military threat that they pose largely to Europe, but to U.S. interests as well, uh, is, is sort of always there in the background and, and sort of even, you know, further complicates this to some degree. Uh, I could see, again, sort of under a, a Biden administration where there is a, um, you know, something, look, we have an arms embargo with respect to China and have for decades, and we don't with respect to Russia, although there are severe restrictions in place, especially in light of the extension of these uh, certain, uh, both the military and user and in use rules and, and other restrictions that have come into play in recent years. Um, you know, it, it is not out of the realm there that we could see uh, sort of something getting creeping closer toward that with respect to Russia, as I think that that continues to be kind of a growing concern. Um, and, uh, you know, again, a change in administration could foster new sort of a new perspective on that, especially if, to, to use the counter example of Tim's uh, comments, if Biden were to win and have a, an entirely democratic Congress, I could certainly see that because this this has been uh, I think a clearly, uh, you know, a, a sort of a, a democratic uh, tough on Russia is certainly and about the least controversial sort of democratic position that uh, the party has. Um, there, you know, it's a it's a bit all over the map if you're talking on the other side of the aisle. But but I do think if that were the reality, then we we could see more there. So um, again, that's kind of a multi multifaceted, uh, you know, if if then scenario, but I but I do think that is in play as well. Um, so with that, unless you have anything further on Russia, we no, can go go to Venezuela. Let's talk about Venezuela. Let's yeah. go to Latin America. So Venezuela, if if there is a President Biden, I actually think Venezuela is the best shot for Biden or Trump, regardless of who wins, to actually cut a deal. I actually think Venezuela is is a situation where right now the sanctions policy in place is one that it will make it very hard to achieve what the stated U.S. goal is of regime regime change, um, because like I, I mentioned before, it's really hard to imagine a scenario where the Maduro government negotiates away its own existence. And so absent that, um, you know, you're just not going to get regime change through sanctions. But the reason that I think President, uh, President Biden would have a really good shot at a deal in Venezuela is that some of the deals, and we talked about this one on the, on the um, podcast earlier. One, some of the proposals involve power sharing arrangements. So essentially Maduro, there'd be some form of the Maduro government that would still be part of a council that would exercise power, but it would be, it would be as part of a plan to essentially restore full democracy to Venezuela so that, that a Maduro government or Maduro's allies certainly could still win in a democratic election. They just need to essentially have a democratic election, but they'd be, be given the option of staying in power so long as certain procedural mechanisms were in place. Now, with the with the Trump administration, I think that the, the chance that that plan would be um, agreed to and put into place are relatively small, because I think there's just so much distrust between the Trump administration and the Maduro regime. Um, and, and, you know, in Maduro, I, I'm not 
you know, saying that 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 uh, is because of anything that the Trump administration has necessarily done that's wrong, because there are some serious problems with the Maduro regime. So I understand why the Trump administration would want to be um, as hard as they have been on them. And in fact, they've they've actually brought much of the world with them on this issue in terms of the Maduro government and the need for reform and and possibly regime change. So it's not even certainly for the Trump administration, one of their more controversial positions, I'd say it's probably a mainstream international position. That said, I, I think that if Biden were to take office as part of his attempt to kind of rally the 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 allies to to a new US kind of fresh start on on um, working together with the allies is part of the new Biden administration. This is a project that the world, I think, could could actually get together on. I mean, I think that there there is consensus that it, given the certain given some reforms in Venezuela um, that look potentially like a power sharing arrangement, the world would really like the sanctions to lift in Venezuela to get back as close to normal as it can as quickly as possible. And President Trump, President, uh, President Biden won't have the same sort of bad blood. Now, certainly President Biden is not going to be a friend of Maduro, but but there wouldn't be the, the history there that would make it very tough for, uh, you know, a, a, a you know, for Maduro to cut a deal with Biden in the same way that it would be very tough, I think, internally for Maduro to cut a deal with Trump because it the 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 bad blood is so great. So I I think that there is an opportunity early in the Biden administration to take advantage of the fact that there's no history there, that there are the conditions that are ripe for some sort of deal, um, be, be, and that and that one of them is that you have international consensus on sanctions and the other is that you don't have the bad history there where, where I think Maduro could cut a deal and not lose face with the Biden administration in the way that he would with the Trump administration. So I, I actually think if a Biden win, the policy would be the Venezuela sanctions stay in place, but there's negotiations uh, to try and um, come up with a solution that would, that would result in lifting them. Yeah, I, so I, I I think I generally agree with I agree with everything you said, and I think that the, the so to to look at it from a Trump second administration perspective, I do think you kind of put your finger on a few of the the, the sort of uh, you know pitfalls or uh, hurdles that'll be in place. One is kind of lack of trust, and this is just you know I think there's just in the global community I think there would be just generally speaking, consensus behind trying to get a coalition together to figure out a, a transition uh, plan and how to negotiate that. But if the U.S. is running point on that, I think under uh, with the Trump administration, I think there's just going to be a lot of skepticism and reticence on the part of you know allied like-minded countries to be a part of that. And certainly the, the Venezuelan, um, the Maduro, Maduro regime for sure, but maybe even more broadly across uh, Venezuela to be part of that. Um, you know, there is, uh, so a couple of, couple of thoughts and comments here, which is, you know, there, there would be another, you know, you could, they could take, they, the Trump administration could take the sanctions up to 11, so to speak. And they could, they could impose essentially a full embargo on Venezuela, which is, you know, many, I think private actors have sort of started to treat Venezuela almost akin to an embargoed country because the sanctions are very extensive at this point. Uh, you know, the government is blocked. Uh, and so they are now kind of lumped in with the Iran's and North Korea's and, and other countries that are, uh, that are embargoed. 
Um, but that could that could happen, and that is not has not happened yet, um, which would I think put us much more on sort of a parallel track to like what Iran looked like, you know, ten years ago or something like that. Um, it, and you know that would be sort of where things would be heading. The other the other potential, uh, which I think is in line with sort of what Tim was talking about about you know negotiations and sort of a way forward and devising some sort of uh, coalition and, and sort of next phase for the Venezuelan, you know, government uh, and and just sort of economy generally is, you know, scenarios that we've seen recently, let's say in Iraq or Libya or places like that, where there have been a long time sort of stranglehold by a regime or leader. Uh, and then that was those people were deposed in those cases due to, you know, military intervention, but, um, and I'm not saying that that's necessarily on the table, although we do hear rumblings of that from time to time with Venezuela. I don't think that that's necessarily on the table, but if there were to be um, something kind of more decisive in terms of a shift, I think that would open things up a little bit to sort of what's the next chapter. The how you get there is obviously the big hurdle. So if it's a further ratcheting up of sanctions, potentially even an embargo, I think the Trump administration would certainly consider that, especially because, um, you know, I do think there are going to be struggles to kind of get a coalition um, behind a U.S.-led effort to have negotiations for sort of a, you know, temporary power sharing, transition government new open free and fair elections, et cetera, plan along the lines that the State Department has rolled out, uh, you know, earlier this year. Um, so it, it will it will be interesting to to see how that plays out. But but I do think there is certainly daylight for more pressure in the maximum pressure campaign. So we may very well see that if we have a Trump um, 2.0 uh, administration that's that's, uh, you know, in overseeing the Venezuela sanctions. Yeah. And I, I, I do, I, I like that you mentioned Libya and Iraq as cautionary tales for where it can go. If you decide to essentially, you know, topple a government with no backup plan in place, you can create kind of a, a long-term lawless zone. And I think it would look like a lot like Iraq and Libya, long-term lawless zone with lots of oil. And so lots of people internally fighting over that oil and, and essentially a failed state in our backyard. And so, so like that strikes me as a, a plausible result of this policy, if it were somehow to achieve regime change. And certainly if we were to do that militarily, um, it seems like a less preferable option than one where we could negotiate uh, some sort of democratic transition that that doesn't get us everything we want because it may not take the Maduro certainly Maduro's allies out of play if they were able to win a you know a free democratic election, but it does get us to a place where Venezuela might have a chance of becoming a functioning state as opposed to a, a failed state. Yeah, no, agree, agree there. So. Um... So with that, let's let's move on to our final our final contestant here on the election palooza, which is Cuba, and and we've we've actually and the point that I want to make is one that I that I made very recently, but I think is worth repeating, which is, uh, you know, with respect to Cuba, obviously we've seen pretty much an about face over the last four years in terms of U.S. policy toward Cuba. Uh, during the tail end of the Obama administration, we were sort of on a path toward. Uh, and there were, in fact, a significant lessening of the sanctions and perhaps even the lifting of the sanctions would have been, uh, you know, on on track to happen at some point in uh, maybe during this past four years, even if there had been 
um, a democratic administration in place. But there's obviously been a full reversal on that. There's been a, a tightening of sanctions um, beyond even what we saw sort of pre those pre lessening uh, under Obama. Um, I, you know, Biden, I, I think it's clear, would would probably tack back much closer to sort of the Obama era um, policy of, of, of lessening. And we've obviously on recent episodes talked about uh, the accommodations, uh, the um, the cap list uh, and the now importation restrictions with respect to cigars and rum and travel restrictions and other things. And, and the current administration has made it as difficult as possible for the for any U.S. persons to have any dealings in Cuba. We've seen a steady pace of enforcement actions with respect to Cuba, uh, and they have tried their best to sort of cut off any sources of revenue that we, they would view to be illicit that are supporting the, the Communist Party or the regime in Cuba. Um, so I do think it's clear that under Biden, that that would sort of there would be a, a starting to roll that back. And and I, I, to be perfectly honest, it's probably not as high. The higher order priorities are some of the programs I think that we've already talked about. But I do think there would be sufficient interest and momentum to perhaps move somewhat quickly on Cuba in the first, let's say, year or two of, of a new administration. However, the big however is, uh, as we mentioned when this came up, um, a couple of episodes ago, you know, I do think that um, much in the way that Cuba's sort of uh, symbiotic tight uh, relationship and patronage uh, by Russia and the and the the Soviet Union for many many years was essentially just a non-negotiable for the U.S. and and made it sort of impossible to to try to deal with uh, Cuba during the Cold War. I do think that the growing uh, ties between Cuba and China are a significant complicating factor in terms of any um, sort of significant shift in uh, Cuba policy. And I do think that given the level, the trade levels that exist now and have been sort of increasing in recent years, the investment levels from China into Cuba, um, I, I, you know, Cuba was one of the countries that came out and openly supported the uh, national security law that China imposed with respect to Hong Kong, which puts them sort of standing in stark opposition to the U.S. on kind of human rights and, and democratic uh, institutions issues that are sort of fundamental to uh, how we're uh, developing policy, foreign policy in the U.S. So I do think that that is something to bear in mind because I don't think it is going to be nearly as simple as, you know, snapping fingers and all of a sudden we're, it's 2015 or 16 again and we're back to, um, you know, latter days of the Obama administration with respect to Cuba. Not to mention the fact that although um, I think there is significant sentiment in certain corners of the U.S. and certainly in the global community for the U.S. to um, to lessen and lighten and wind down sanctions with, with respect to Cuba. There are still obviously very vociferous Cuba hawks in the U.S. that in Congress certainly and in other um, important positions in, the, in, in uh, government that are going to make that um, very difficult and perhaps politically expensive if the Biden administration really wants to go down that road. So I think that is something to bear in mind um, going forward as well. Yeah, I, so I see so I see two possibilities in Cuba um, if Biden wins. One is that you know Biden just immediately starts undoing some of the ramped up sanctions from the Trump Trump administration. If, if, and that wouldn't if, be that hard to do no, in many in most right. instances. Yep. And a President Biden could go back to 2016 pretty easily if 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 you know if he wanted to, because 
everything that President Trump did was by executive order. So it can all be undone by an executive order. That's So I see that as one scenario, but for the reasons that you just mentioned, Brian, I I view that as less likely because Cuba, I I think a President Biden who appears like he would be a pretty cautious president would not want to go to Cuba now and essentially unilaterally give back um, the ground on sanctions that the Trump administration has taken because that whether whether Cuba is justified in it or not, their behavior has changed since 2016 in a way that I think a President Biden would feel a need to address. So you mentioned China. Uh, they've also you know, been in, engaging, at least according to the U.S., engaging in all sorts of uh, oil trade with Venezuela yep. and other types of trade with Venezuela that the, the U.S. finds very problematic. And I think a Biden administration would find problematic at least as long as the Venezuela sanctions stayed in place. And I certainly think they they would stay in place under a Biden administration unless and until there was a, a deal that was struck of the sort that we were just talking about. So I think, you know, th- that to me, uh, what I think is much more likely is that a, a President Biden comes in, holds negotiations with Cuba, maybe, you know, closed door kind of under the radar negotiations with Cuba, but eventually they strike a new deal to lift, just similar to the one that President Obama struck, where there, there was essentially a, an agreement with the Cubans to bring the embassy back and do this, and then the Cubans would agree to do, take various other steps related to potentially China, certainly to Venezuela. They would make commitments um, as to what they would do, and upon verification that those commitments were being implemented, certain sanctions would start to, to, to go away, and we would look back like 2016, but it wouldn't just be a unilateral President Biden walks in and just kind of signs an executive order on doing everything that Trump did. So I think there'll be a process and it might be a quick process, but I think there will be a process to, that the U.S. would need to follow. And, and it might not result in lifting of the sanctions, but I, I think it probably would. And it probably would in a way that gets some commitments from Cuba. Yeah. So then I think the last question to wrap up on would be, you know, if we have Trump 2.0, how much worse can they make things with respect to Cuba? What else could what else could be coming down the road? Uh, there, you know, unless he wants to invade, there's really not a lot left to do with respect to Cuba sanctions. Um, you know, certainly you could change, you could take back all the general licenses that still exist. There's still a lot of ways to travel to to Cuba. Um, they, he'd have to stop. You know, there's still carrier service, nonstop carrier service from the U.S. that was allowed under the the Obama administration, and while that's been scaled back quite a bit under Trump, it still exists. He could stop that, essentially cut off Cuba entirely, you know, quote unquote, embargo Cuba um, and, and uh, blockade it by, by uh, essentially not allowing anything into the, the country um, as part of an embargo. Now, all, all that could happen. It seems like that would be a lot of, uh, a, a, a lot of resources and a lot of effort for, for little gain. For little gain, it's not clear to me what the point would be of doing that. Um, it, it, you know, I, you're still not going to change the Cuban government's behavior, and it doesn't seem like 60 years in that you're going to overthrow the Cuban government. So, so I, I I think that President Trump would likely tinker around the margins if he wins. The sanctions that he's put in place will stay in place. He doesn't show any real desire to have any sort of deal with Cuba. It's basically just change your government or we'll leave the sanctions in place and we're not going to worry too much about them. And occasionally when we think about it, we'll come in and increase them. And if you misbehave, you know, in Venezuela or China or what have you, we'll increase them again. But I think right. it's kind of... It's a low priority um, 
both to get a deal and to change the sanctions much. And so I think Cuba will look a lot like uh, it does now if a Trump two term happens. Yeah. So, um, no, I agree with that. I, and, and so I think that'll wrap us up. I mean, there's obviously a lot of other programs we could have touched on. We didn't touch on North Korea. We didn't touch on Syria. We didn't touch on Nicaragua. We didn't touch on, a, you know, other, um, you know, sort of broad-based um, cross-border programs that OFAC administers, other issues that are important that are obviously going to be impacted. But I do think uh, we quickly came to consensus that these are the five countries that would make the most sense to talk about. Uh, I'm sure that a year or 18 months from now, someone will play this back for us and be like, wow, you guys were totally wrong. Totally about all missed the, all this everything stuff. was wrong. But that's okay. We'll own that. That's fine. Um, hold us accountable. Hold us accountable. Tweet at us. Hit us up on LinkedIn, whatever. Uh, if you want to do that, that we're fine with that. So um, so with that, let's, let's wrap up Election Palooza and let's move to the lightning round. Uh, only one topic uh, on one proper lightning round topic, and then it's time for trivia. Uh, and so as I said at the outset, um, Ant Group, which is the uh, sort of financial arm or not arm, but spinoff uh, out of Alibaba, which focuses on um, payments processing, credit, insurance, um, all those types of uh, items in largely, mostly in China, um, is set to IPO soon. And it is planned to be a dual listing in Shanghai and Hong Kong. Uh, there were just some regulatory approvals received earlier this week that cleared the way for that. And the reports are that they are aiming to be the largest IPO in history. They're aiming to raise $35 billion through this IPO. So this is a very big deal. Um, Alibaba remains um, a significant shareholder uh, of Ant. Um, Jack Ma is the largest shareholder, I believe. Uh, and so this is super high profile. It's large. It is hugely consequential as Ant is, uh, and Alipay in particular, is everywhere in China. Uh, we, you know, in talking in recent weeks about WeChat, Tencent, and WePay, uh, you know, Alipay is sort of the, the number, you know, they're sort of one and two jockeying for supremacy in the payments market for anybody who's unfamiliar. And so this is a massively important and um, high profile IPO that is coming. So the US is unhappy about this. And so what is what is going on on the US side? So again, I said the IPO is happening in Shanghai and Hong Kong. It is not happening in New York. Uh, so what is the US doing? Well, the reports are that the US is considering, and in fact, there is a proposal on the table in front of the end user review committee, which are the four agencies that decide who goes on the entity list uh, to add Ant Group to the entity list. Now, you might be asking yourself, hmm, that's odd. I'm not quite sure why, why would Ant be going on the entity list? Um, they're not, unlike Huawei or unlike ZTE or unlike many of the other companies, they don't, they don't make anything. They're a financial, essentially a financial services firm. Um, what would cutting them off from US technology actually accomplish? Well, according to the news reports, the US is uh, considering this because they want to essentially deter US investors from getting involved in the IPO, in part because they fear that any closer linkages uh, between US investors, whether they be institutional or otherwise, would expose sensitive US data to Ant and to the Chinese government. Um, as, a, as a quick reminder for those of you who were not are not recalling this, um, Ant tried 
2017 to acquire MoneyGram, the U.S. Um, payments uh, company that has locations in you know, literally thousands of locations around the globe. And CFIUS got in the way of that. And CFIUS ultimately said, we're not going to be willing to approve this deal. And they had to walk away from that deal. And so at the time, there was a lot of focus. And this is before the new CFIUS law was in place, FIRMA. Uh, this is early Trump administration. Uh, and what was being reported at the time is that data privacy considerations were front and center there in terms of the US not allowing that merger to go through. And so I think it is fair to say, and it is not a stretch whatsoever to say that it is those same considerations that are driving uh, the potential entity listing of Ant. Now, my question for you, Mr. O'Toole, to what end, what are we, what is, what is happening here? What is the end, what is an entity listing for a company like Ant going to do? Is this largely symbolic as many others, many have sort of weighed in and said, this is largely symbolic. It's trying to put some taint on Ant, but it is not really going to impact their business because to, to my knowledge and to most person, people's knowledge, they don't rely on controlled US technology. Um, it's not like Huawei where they're, you know, they need chips. They have a supply chain that's heavily reliant on the US. It is more kind of a half measure, a, a symbolic measure being taken to kind of put some taint on them to keep US investors away. What do you say to that? What do you think about that? It seems pretty crazy. I mean, it's not anything like the per the, the reason that in it, in the past that the U.S. government would use the entity list. I mean, the entity list is designed to restrict access to U.S. controlled technology, and um, by by companies that have been shown to either have misused it or used it in ways that that violate national security. That that isn't what's going on with Ant. It's just be a pure kind of punishment. It, it might have some effect. I mean, U.S. as we know. Um, U.S. persons get very nervous when they see sanctions and they don't know what to do with them. And so if they saw that Ant was under sanctions, I certainly think some investors uh, would would be less likely to invest in the IPO than they would have without the sanctions. On the other hand, um, those investors should feel free to call us and we can walk them through the real sanctions risk that would be imposed by a, a listing of Ant. And I think as a practical matter, it would be close to zero because we don't know of any U.S. origin technology that they're using. There's no financial restrictions on, on U.S. persons on dealing with entity list entities, certainly no restriction from being on the entity list that you could, a U.S. person couldn't purchase, you know, shares in a, a company that's on the entity list. That's just not part of the listing. So, so it would be a, a purely symbolic act that might have some effect, but would hopefully um, wind up generating some business for us. And uh, in terms of advising, <laughs> advising uh, potential investors as to what the, the, the do's and don'ts are because of an entity listing. Yeah. I, so just quickly, I would say two, two things to, to on that front. So um, Tim's right that obviously if they were on the entity list and then anybody running screening on them going forward would see that they're on a restricted party list administered by the U.S. government and folks who don't understand the difference between the SDN list and the entity list might get scared away. That is, that is true. Um, and I do think to, it is also important to note that, and this is something that we have talked about and thought about a lot with respect to Huawei, certainly, that if the U.S. really wanted the nuclear option, they would just throw all these companies on the SDN list. 
they would block them all. And uh, we're certain, and I think the sort of WeChat uh, TikTok challenges, I, I think have perhaps represented sort of a new era where companies are going to be more, um, feel like they have, they need to fight back. I mean, they've always fought back to some degree, but I think there's some avenues here uh, and maybe some cracks in terms of uh, how far IEPA authorities can really extend in terms of, of doing certain things when you don't have a sort of clean, uh, clear basis to be putting somebody on the list. Now, I obviously am not speaking whatsoever to any kind of, you know, there might be classified bases for many, if not all of these companies to be sort of concerns to the U.S. on national security grounds. But in terms of what we know, certainly with Ant, um, it is a kind of prospective prophylactic data security consideration. The entity list is not really the way that you would typically go about doing that. I suppose it is also possible that, that we could see like a WeChat, TikTok type order that goes after Alipay or goes after Ant in some way. But obviously the U.S. at the moment is over two on that front. So I think there would have to be some rethinking about what, what may come there. Um, but this is, so, so again, kind of fit for purpose with the tool. What is really, what are they trying to accomplish? What is it really going to do? What is it going to mean? Um, I think uh, our view is probably not that much, in, but it's also no guarantee that this is going to be the end of it. Um, there could always be sort of a rationing up or sort of a pivot to a slightly different tool, whether it be a, a targeted executive order or something else. So I think this is just all a way of saying like, this is one to kind of keep your eye on. Um, we certainly don't expect this is going to stop or deter the IPO from going forward, but, uh, but keep your eye on this because this is a big deal and, and it's going to make some news if, especially if they time it to sort of coincide or closely coincide with the IPO, it'll, it'll certainly be kind of um, mud in the eye of, uh, of a kind of shining star of the Chinese economy. And, and that's never going to be taken lightly by Beijing. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I definitely think that, you know, to, to, one of, to one of your points, Brian, it's a really good one about the possibility of litigation. I think that both WeChat and, uh, and the TikTok litigation have shown that if you start using these sanctions-like tools in ways that, you know, a court could find are either irrational or violate uh, First Amendment principles. And I think with, you know, Ant, it would be using the entity list without any um, arguable basis that it, it is that the, the criteria for designation are really met. And again, we don't know what would be in the classified packet, but if if basically the only justification for doing this is to mess with their IPO, because we think that they're doing, you know, nebulous bad stuff. I, I do think that they're they're going to push the limits of whatever authority they use to try and um, take an action like that. So we'll we'll see yeah. how that plays out. But I I think that that if there is a Trump two administration, we may get to to see some new law about the limits of executive branch authority to impose sanctions where they're clearly not the the a tool that was designed to do anything like what is happening. Yeah, I'll just, I agree with that. And I'll just end on this, which is, you know, although the historical basis to add a company to the entity list is exactly as Tim explained, that there's some, there was some violations that were going on that needed to be sort of stopped. Um, the, if you look at the actual language for what, what you need to put for the end user review committee to decide that a company should go on, it is quite broad. It is sort of foreign policy and national security you know, it pretty broadly defined and broadly scoped. And just because it has never been used in that manner historically does not necessarily mean that it does not, um, it is not there. Now, I, again, 
my understanding is in terms of prior challenges there, we probably haven't seen it come in a circumstances like this where it's being used this aggressively, this broadly. And so I do think that the more forward leaning, the more expansive that the administration tries to get in terms of how it uses this tool, the more risk it, it does take on in opening itself up to a challenge that might yeah. be a good challenge. It might well, be right. found to be persuasive by court. Well, the hook under the EAR, and, and yes, the, the, the End User Review Committee has a lot of discretion on this, but they are operating under a law that the purpose of that law is to regulate exports of U.S. origin goods. And so to, to impose an entity listing that has like no even like laugh test connection rational, to U.S. Right. origin it, goods seems like it basis? would be difficult to, difficult right. to explain to a court why, um, why, why ECRA... G authorizes the end user review committee to to just impose a sanctions designation with no nexus to US origin goods whatsoever. Right. In in administrative law terms, this this seems perhaps to be creeping close to sort of arbitrary and capricious action yeah. by the US government, which is the standard under the Administrative Procedures Act to challenge something like this that would go through full, uh, it would have to be sort of run up the flagpole at the agency. But if you, you lose there, then you go run to court and you sort of say, this is a violation of the APA because it's arbitrary capricious action unsupported by the record. And I agree that, that it seems like we're wading closer and closer to that territory if this is in fact what's happening again with no knowledge whatsoever what could be right. in a classified record but just but, in terms of what's being articulated at least through confidential sourcing apparently inside the government and and others if it's a sort of again sort of broad-based kind of data privacy consideration related to the ipo how does the restriction on it's it's very it seems very attenuated yeah yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree. And I, I think that, that this, um, you know, hopefully we won't get to that at any point, but I, I, I definitely think that it would be a, a real stretch of, of, of powers in a way that both uh, Huawei and uh, ZTE were not because were not. Those, yeah. those, both of those entity list designations, you know, whatever else you think about them, the grounding for the designation was a misuse of US origin exports. So essentially, you know, the diversion to Iran um, in one instance, and then, you know, both the diversion to Iran along with some uh, false statements to, to banking personnel on the other hand, but still like a, there was a real nexus in both instances to the, the perceived misuse of U.S. origin goods. Right. And, and to, again, to date, we have no no reporting to suggest that is the case with Ant. So yeah. uh, that is the assumption we're working off of. But in any event, let's put that aside. Right. Let's do I think trivia. That's a, good, that's a good introduction. And now let's go to what everybody's been waiting for with just trivia. So you're up first to try to stump right. me, and then I'm, and I'll, I will wrap up. Awesome. I also have a three-part question. Yeah, so. and Tim is obviously out for blood because um, no, I'm he, not. I'm, I'm. This is actually <laughs> this is actually a pretty I think a pretty easy question, but okay. but, but not too easy. I mean, it's, okay. it's trivia. All right, hit me. It's a, it's a trivia. Okay, so we know that OFAC, the Office of Foreign Assets Control, was established in 1962. What was its direct administrative predecessor? What was it called? When was it established? And why was it established? Okay, so we might, so oddly enough, our questions may overlap somewhat, <laughs> um, as, as you'll see in a moment. So I am going to, I'm going to, Totally, I'm blanking on the name of the direct predecessor, so I don't think I'm going to have a 
So it was it was the who, what, and when that was the yeah, question. The who, okay. Yeah. Okay. What the what was the name? Yeah. When was it established? And okay. what and why? So I'm going to go, and this is this is in fact going to go back to this is going to tie into my question. So um, I, I think it goes all the way back to World War One and the passage of the Trading with the Enemies Act and the sort of first generation of sanctions that you saw imposed by the U.S. government with respect to countries that we were in armed conflict with. Um, and so, yeah, that would be my, so my answer would be sort of 1917, uh, because that's when the Trading with the Enemies Act was passed. And um, it would be sort of, it would be Germany and sort of the, uh, the, the powers that we were up against in World War One as to dealing with them and the sort of dissipation of assets um, that we were trying to prevent in connection with that conflict. So that's a, that is a good answer. But it is wrong. Um, well, I, it's, well, it's not the, it's not the answer okay. that I have. Cause I, I did make the, I did make the question, okay. the direct administrative which I predecessor, which, cause I yeah. know there's lots of historical Fair analogs enough. for, for OFAC. And so I think your answer is, you know, correct in terms of administrative predecessor. I think you're, you're right that there was this administrative sanctions regime in, in World War I under, under TWIA, which was a World War I law. And, and so, so DFAC, the Division of Foreign Assets Control, mm. was actually created as a, as in the Office of International Finance in the Treasury Department in 1950. Mm -hmm. um, it was created immediately after- Korea, Korean War. PRC invaded yeah. invaded Korea. Yeah. So Truman declared a national, President Truman created it and declared a national emergency, blocked all Chinese and North Korean assets. So, that, so the North Korean sanctions actually were the first sanctions, mm -hmm. um, at least under that DFAC imposed. And that was the reason that it was founded. And then um, in 1962, the Treasury created the, the Office of Foreign Assets Control just from the division. So it was just an executive order that changed the name from DFAC to OFAC, which it is today. Okay. Yeah. So amazingly enough, our trivia questions are uh -oh. <laughs> somewhat overlapping here. So, um, so, okay. So I struck out on that one. I'm over. Uh, I took an over. You know, I, My I, batting it, average goes down. That's okay. I, That's okay. That was a that was totally fair question. That was a good one. Um, not unfair, probably like my <laughs> mine from the first time around. Right. So mine, as I said, has to, mine has to do with Tuya. has to do with the training with the NFL. So um, let's go backwards. I was going to go, I was going to start at the beginning and go forward, but let's go backwards, which is okay. um, so a three-part question as well. So uh, as of today, there's only one OFAC administered sanctions program that relies upon TWIA as its basis of authority. What program is that? That's Cuba. That is Cuba, which I knew obviously you were going to get. That's pretty North easy. Korea used to, but they now have different authorities. That. <laughs> That is actually my second question, which was, oh. um, other than Cuba, what was the last country other than Cuba to be reliant upon TUIA for its sanctions authorities? I think it was North Korea. It was North Korea. What year was it that that was switched? Was it 2017? Was it part of CATSA? No, it was earlier than that. It was 2008. Oh. It was under the Bush, the second Bush administration. And at the time, what was happening was there was some progress being perceived in terms of the nuclear disarmament of North Korea. So there was a proclamation made that uh, the, the TWIA sanctions were gonna be lifted and, and taken away. Um, and as a result, there were almost, there were immediately IEPA based sanctions that were put in place. So they were not sort of completely taken away. They were basically just transitioned over to an IEPA based 
um, executive order that reimposed those sanctions. And as a as a matter of um, the way the statute is written, um, I think North Korea and Cuba had been grandfathered in under TWIA because there requires a declaration of war or some hostile right. um, hostilities ongoing to be able to impose under TWIA. That had obviously gone away with respect to North Korea. And so the grandfathering like disappeared essentially when the proclamation was made. That's why we've now moved to an IEPA-based program. Uh, and so, and I believe before that, the last, um, the last government that was uh, the last country, I don't have this. Imp- I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just offer this up because I don't have it in front of me. But I believe Vietnam would have been, and North Vietnam would have been the last before that, in the 70s, that would have been um, removed as a TWIA-based sanctions program. And then, right. my third question was actually one that I've already given away the answer to, which is, what was the first country that was subject to TWIA-based sanctions, and when and, was that? And that was. North North Korea or no actually 1917 Ger- Germany the 19 19- that was, that was yeah. Ger- yep that's that's Germany. right it was Ger- it was Germany that's the reason for that's the reason the law was put in place it was Germany uh, and it was World War One and it was Germany and certain countries that were sort of uh, where the conflict was ongoing that were sort of encompassed by that but it was primarily targeted at Germany so which yeah. is really the predecessor of OFAC so I th- I, I think you get at least. You know, it's okay. I'm not. I'm not grubbing. I'm not grubbing, grubbing for credit. I didn't get it right. And as Tim knows from having done trivia with me, I will. I will. I will argue vociferously if I think I'm entitled to credit for trivia. You uh, want Brian points. as your lawyer if you're arguing <laughs> for points in a trivia. Yeah, tri- trivia lawyering is a is a side gig that's not on the website, but it is something that I uh, that I do excel at. So, um, okay. So with that, a lot of TWIA based trivia, but um, I think that now wraps us up for Election Palooza, um, ending on a bit of a lighter note after talking about a lot of weighty subjects. Uh, so thank you to everybody for for tuning in to the latest episode of Embargoed. Please. Please check us out anywhere you get your content, Apple, Google, Spotify, YouTube. Please leave us a rating. Uh, This is up uh, the last week of October, um, the last week before the U.S. election. Obviously, many people voting already, whether by mail or uh, early voting. If you're in the United States, please vote. Uh, However you're going to vote, please figure out how you're going to vote and just do it. Uh, don't make excuses, just do it. Uh, and uh, we will be back again with our first post-election episode. We're planning to record late in the week of the election. So November 5th or 6th, we may have a guest on that. We may wait an episode to bring on our first sort of post-election guest. Uh, we will sort of wait and see what, what transpires in the next couple of weeks, which as I said earlier, uh, all bets are somewhat off. Uh, I, I hope that is not the case here. I hope things go smoothly and all bets are not off, but uh, we shall see and, and we will rejoin you again on on the other side, so to speak. So until next time, uh, to everybody, stay safe, please vote and stay sanctions free. Everybody votes, everybody wins. Exactly. Stay sanctions free, you guys. Thanks, everybody. Bye.